please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, looking first at verses 13 and 14 there. 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14. It is hard, in fact it's almost impossible, to miss the great division and the irony between these two verses. Last week we ended with verse 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And today we begin with verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The Lord wants us to continue to see this great contrast between Saul and David. Saul, the people demanded to have a king like everybody else around them. So God gave them exactly what they asked for, a king like all the kings of the nations around them, but who was devoid of true faith. God equipped him to fight against Israel's enemies, but he didn't really know God. He rebelled against God's commands and did things his own way. And the Lord rejected him as king over Israel. Then the Lord provides for himself a king for Israel, who we find out in verse 13 is David. And God's prophet Samuel anoints David, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David is equipped by the Lord, you see, to not just be their warrior king. And as the Lord referred, inferred in verse 7, David's heart already belonged to the Lord. David was the youngest of seven brothers, but he was selected or chosen by God for this very special purpose. Now as we continue here, It seems like these spiritual distinctions made little practical difference in Saul's position as king of Israel right now. It looks like nothing's changed, in other words. In other words, this was not an immediate break, decisive in nature, that everyone saw. Saul was still functioning as king of Israel. He was battling enemies and ruling like a king does. But the rejection of Saul by God himself would bring incredible changes. God was just going to work it all out over what will look like maybe a long time to us. Saul's turning away from following the Lord and his refusal to obey the Lord is going to bring about many immediate consequences that heighten the contrast as we dive into David's life and the rest of 1 Samuel. There is never a dull, boring moment in the rest of this book. Um, There really hasn't been yet either. We see, in fact, that Saul's evil intentions and bizarre behavior that actually provide a dark background by which the light of David's faith in the Lord shines so brightly. And 
creates a beautiful, beautiful picture. But we see both sides right beside each other all the way through. Many creeds and statements use the format of affirmations and denials in order to make clear what is true and what is not true. That's sort of what we see here in the contrast of David's rise to power and Saul's demise. What is true and worthy of affirmation in David's life is starkly contrasted with what is worthy of denial in Saul's life. So be on the lookout for who or what each man trusts, what or who each man lives for, what each man wants, what or who each man serves, how each man thinks, what each man's motives are, how each man leads, how each man looks at trouble, what each man's hope is, what each man's values are. It's very, very insightful. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through verse 23, the end of chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're using a pew Bible or the first edition of the ESV, you will notice and you will hear a changed word right at the beginning, and it is consistent through. That's because the first edition of the ESV changed the word to become consistent. So I'm reading the next version's word, and you know they update these things every so often. And it will be something you will notice, and it's strange. Okay? Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service. For he has found favor in my sight. 
And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, let's start with the main point. The main point of this passage is really very simple. And it's at the end of verse 18. The Lord is with David. If you want to understand David, this is the decisive statement for understanding this young man. What happens here in verses 14 through 23 provides the context in which we see the difference between the Lord's presence with David and the Lord's absence from Saul. And you have to admit that the story itself is ironic and interesting, and it's an interesting way to do this and to make this point. But that's where we're going. So first we see in verse 14 that God's Spirit departs. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented or terrorized him. So first, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Wow, has this part of this verse received so much attention, much of it damaging and misunderstood. Back in chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, after Saul had been privately anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel, we read that Saul received assurances that, yes, he was to be the king. And he was equipped by God for this task as the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in chapter 10. We learned then that this equipping meant that he was given power to meet a crisis. In other words, he was equipped for the task of leadership. In other words, God sometimes sent his spirit to enable certain servants to perform designated tasks. In Saul's case, as as is displayed throughout chapter 10 all the way through our text today and a little farther, whatever else happened to him, Saul did not receive eternal life or enter into a true saving relationship with the Lord because we see throughout up until his dying day in the future that he never showed any inclination to obey God's word except when he thought it would serve his own purposes and then he reinterpreted it which is what he got in trouble for. So now we see that the Lord has rejected him as king and removes his own presence from Saul. Meaning that Saul is left to his own devices without God's equipping presence and power. Let that sink in for a second. Remember that Saul is still functioning in the capacity of a king 
And remember that Saul had proved over and over again that he was going to do things his own way without obeying the Lord. So, the Lord left him to himself, which is what Saul wanted. But the Lord also does something else here in this verse, doesn't he? Secondly, we see here that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And as I mentioned, there's been great debate about what this means, but there are really only two viable possibilities. In other words, I'm saving you a lot of time unless you just really want to get into it yourself. You're welcome. But it gets crazy when you start looking at all the things people say about this particular part of this verse. The two viable possibilities are first that this is an evil spirit, which is how some translations translate this word. I'll explain that in a minute. That there is an evil spirit that the Lord used to torment his rebellious ex-king. In other words, the Holy Spirit's departure allowed demonic affliction since Saul was easy prey, easy prey for Satan. And since God is the sovereign ruler of every being, including kings, he was not the source of the evil, but allowed the evil spirit to torment Saul for the purpose of establishing David in his throne, which points to Christ. That's one viable possibility. The second possibility is that this is not an evil spirit. But as the English Standard Version renders it, a harmful spirit from the Lord. In other words, this is an angel who was not himself evil, but rather he was sent by the Lord to bring harm upon Saul. And this harm was sent by God as an act of judgment on Saul's sin. As the theological word book of the Old Testament, affectionately known by many academics as the TWOT, says, the Hebrew word for harmful here indicates that the angel was not demonic, but that the angel brought distress or an abnormal condition to the person affected. You could also say, or afflicted. I think the harmful spirit is the better of the two possibilities, but either one can work, maybe almost. It's tough choice, but we've seen that God does judge folks before they meet their death. Saul was not suffering here from a mental disturbance or some kind of medical condition. He was suffering from an external power. Tormented is better understood if we also add the New American Standards translation of terrorized to it. In fact, I'd put those two together. He was 
tormented and terrorized, which explains his desperate plight. One commentator writes, this was a supernatural assault by a being sent at the Lord's command, and it was brought on by Saul's disobedience. The point is that Saul's repeated rebellion against God's commands had finally brought not only his rejection as king, but also God's judgment in the form of heaven-sent spiritual torment. Next, we see in verses 15 and 16, the proposal for Saul's therapy. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting or terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. And when, I'm trying not to say liar, it's not working, so... We're not talking about a person who lies. We're talking about a really nice musical instrument. Just wanted to clarify that. Even though there's Oklahoma people here who say it kind of the same way. We've all got the same problem. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Now notice here that even Saul's court The people in his court, his servants here, recognized that Saul's problem came from his alienation from God. He was becoming unstable, he was becoming hostile, and providing quite a challenge, therefore, to everybody around him. So they were very eager to seek a solution, not just because they cared about Saul, but because they were the brunt of his outbursts or had to deal with the consequences of them. But their solution was much the same, much the same as unrepentant man's always has been. Do you see that? What was it? Their solution was to provide some sort of sedative. Not much has really changed. In this case, soothing music, which doesn't exactly address Saul's need to genuinely repent. And instead, it might even mask the true need. Why? Because it worked temporarily. It it got him calmed down temporarily, but it seemed to keep coming back. Unrepentant sin is the real issue here. So while this idea will produce some temporary relief, the sin issue is actually going to get worse and worse and worse over time. Does that sound familiar? In verse 17, we see that Saul authorizes their little proposal. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So then David is nominated in verse 18. Try to picture what's going on here. This group of servants in the court. They've got this problem. It's huddle time. Do you know anybody? 
Who could do this? Wow, I feel for him. But he might make it. He might do it. So one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. That is quite a recommendation. Now God allows us to see something here. So let's call it what it is. We get to see God's providence. Of all the people that could be considered, David is the one who caught someone's attention. What do we learn about what these men knew about David? How did David come across to them? Do you realize this is the one of the most clear and distinctive descriptions of character of somebody in the whole Bible? Here in one verse. Well, we read that he's a skilled musician. We are blessed. We know what this means. Secondly, he's described as a man of valor, a man of war. Do you know what happens in chapter 16? Look in your Bibles. Just read the title. Yes, a giant appears whose name is Goliath. This is before Goliath. Hmm. Wonder how you knew that. A man who is prudent in speech. This is a young man who is prudent in speech. Since the Bible links the mouth with the heart. We know what we speak and how we speak and why we speak indicates a whole lot about the condition of our hearts. We know that. We also fear the repercussions because flames, our own flames, have destroyed so much in scorched earth kind of blasts. But look what they said about David, a young man who has already learned this. David's own prayer in Psalm 19, verse 14, lets us know that he knows how important this is. It's well known, Psalm 19, 14, we read, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is his heart's desire for how he thinks and what he says. 
Next, we read that he has a good presence. And this indicates a confident and a positive demeanor with dignity and respect for others, not just that he was handsome with beautiful eyes, which we've already read. It is that, but we see, as we learned earlier, that a person's physical appearance does not matter in God's service. What matters is the heart. David, it seems, was blessed with both, but how he carried himself is what people noticed because it was not arrogant. We see the minute we start the next chapter in this horrid situation of war that his approach to the king himself and why he volunteered is so incredible to us. And it should be. But the most important thing that this young man who was recommending him before the others knew about David was the very last thing, which is kind of the point of the passage. And the Lord is with him. This is the key. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. David had obviously opened his life to God's leading and obedience to the scripture that he had, knowing the Lord was with him. One writer says, In their character-forming years, Christian youths should begin to participate in the spiritual warfare of the church by standing up for what's right, praying against what is wrong, and sharing with others the good news of Jesus Christ. Why not? This is how God forms us. with the support of believers. This should be a part of this whole process, learning how to trust God as he uses us and wherever he puts us in whatever circumstances. In verse 19, we see Saul's call for David. You know, when you look through this outline, this is not a complicated outline at all Um, it is interesting and I might get to be able to share with you why on that score but it's not complicated therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse he was open to these guys and said send me David your son who is with the sheep 
So David arrives in the next verse and a half. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Oh, Lord, please guard my son's life. Uh, we've already seen Saul. He's getting a little crazy. And he wants him in his court and use these gifts to show our good intention. You get that going on? Every parent in here understands what this is like. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Not much explanation there. Next, we see Saul's favor. Verses 21, the last half to verse 22. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Now, every one of you, if you know the Lord and you've read his word, you should know what's coming is the exact opposite of this attitude. So the irony dripping here from chapter 16 comes clearly into view, as does the contrast that the Lord is wanting us to see. Not only is David the Lord's choice, he's also Saul's choice. Who would have thought? It is the chosen king who keeps the rejected king from falling completely apart. Who would have thought? The chosen king is not a threat, but a means of grace to Saul. You know, it's still sad, though, because Saul has intermittent therapy, but not the Spirit of God. Can you see how all this is setting up what's coming? Actually, pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, it worked. There was temporary relief. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And then the harmful spirit departs. Last part of verse 23, so Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him and our chapter ends there but what else can we learn from the way David served and consoled Saul this is going to be hard to hear because we're Americans who think that our first and utmost priority is our own opinion, our own happiness, and our own working things out our own way. But is that what we've seen here? This is hard because we also know it won't be long before Saul deeply and bitterly comes to hate David so much that he even repeatedly tries to kill him. 
So this view into this situation here is really important for us to understand. And we can do that a little better if we ask, well, what's our call as believers? Well, may sound like a dumb question, but doesn't the world also hate the followers of Christ? I think Christians in, in this country especially got pretty spoiled over the last a lot of years, many, many, many decades, going back a pretty far time, because in general, we, we got proud because, you know, we're the country that where most of the people believed in God, uh, even in Christ himself, and trusted him, and all these great things, and we're blessed out of our minds, we don't even know what to do with all the stuff we've got, and it's probably because there's so many of us who believed and something started going weird on us then didn't it we wanted the world's approval so a lot of people started compromising their faith so much that you can't even tell any difference anymore between a group gathered in Christ's name and a, a group gathered down the street in the Unitarian Universalist, whatever God you want to think is theirs name, or any other gathering of people, whether it's the God, the people who work, worship recreation every Sunday morning and are somewhere else, whether it's people who don't even know there is a Sunday, whether people don't even know that anybody in here worships God because, you know, you can't tell anywhere else or anytime else during the week. I'm counting on the fact that that is not true. That the grace of the Lord and the light that shines from his life, giving us a reason to live, shines through. But does it come through in the way that David shows us here? He consoled a man whom he probably knew very well was rejected by God as being king because he was privately anointed as the next one already. And as a young man, he was trusting God with this so much that he went to this place and he served in this court. And pretty soon when he's playing, javelins are going to be thrown at him. What kind of an attitude does it take to live that way in our world? Especially in the day when what is popular and what is applauded is an in-your-face retort to every possible question regarding anything that disagrees with anybody, but especially in regard to our faith. And we have to answer this because we need to respond in a way that looks for the blessing that helps serve people 
that helps shine the light of Christ in a dark place. There is no call to create one more commune out in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. So we can all be together and not face anything. He's put us where he has put us for a reason. And it is to shine the light of Christ. And we gather together with those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis to encourage one another in love and good works, knowing that this is our purpose when things get tougher and tougher and tougher. And we take our young ones to our side and we teach them how great our God is by letting them see that we bow before him in every circumstance of our own lives. So that they wonder, what is going on? And they see our love for the Lord. And they see our commitment to him and to other believers. And maybe they even see the heartache of lost opportunities, possessions, meeting places. We, we don't know. But are we glad to be in the kingdom that he has called us to be in and at the same time glad that he put us in this kingdom on earth to be able to bring glory and honor to him as we serve him? And all that does to us is when we sing those songs, all of a sudden it's coming out a little more hearty, pun intended. Because they're not just words anymore. These are things we're hanging on to that are expressed. It's the word of God expressed through music, which we know is beautiful and can even do things like calm down someone tormented by a harmful spirit named Saul. Powerful. The truth in those words and phrases is really important. And when we pray... Is it just to get together and see everybody? Or is it to bow down before the King of Kings and go, Lord, you've put a burden on our hearts and we're seeing things that we have never seen in our lifetimes before and you're letting us see them because we have been so asleep. People's hearts haven't changed. They're still born evil just like we are. Right? Jesus had a lot to say about this, didn't he? We're supposed to live in such a way that the condemned world is actually blessed by us and even benefits from us as we proclaim the message. I think Jesus says this in this way in Matthew 5.13, as salt of the earth. I don't want to really step on anybody's inf- overinflated self-image. Well, maybe we're salt. Sheep. But we're redeemed. <laughs> we're united to the King of Kings. 
and his spirit lives in us. That's the call for every one of us who knows the Lord. We are salt, empowered by the Lord himself. Our identity is already taken care of. Our future is taken care of. Yes, we are on a mission. Every day we are on a mission. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, even in the midst of stuff that any normal person would not say they enjoy. But there is nothing more joyful than seeing God work through whatever situation you're in or the peace that comes with knowing he's got you wrapped up in his arms, knowing that you can face anything because he's with you, he's walking with you, and he will be with you forever and ever. That's our joy and our hope. Who else has that in our world right now? Not very many. So Christians need to ask, we need to ask, aren't we supposed to keep society and culture from rotting into complete decay? Any, in other words, our, our goal in that sense is to keep the world from being worse than it is. Maybe we need to wake up, and you guys know I taught history for years and years and years, world history. Maybe we all need to at least learn enough history to know that we aren't anywhere near the worst of anything yet. Not anywhere close. And yet the wines are the chorus that we hear all around us. Oh, woe is me about this and about that. We need to count how special it is to be called a child of God. The blessings that go with that, but mainly that he is our hope. Get to know him. Hopefully some of those perspectives will help. It's okay to remember what you think is glory days, as long as you're not worshiping them. Do we want God to do whatever he needs to do to bring people to Christ? That's the question. And in that, am I willing to be used by God to do whatever I need to do in trusting him to be a part of that process? And it covers the bases. One of the hardest is really consistently praying for those who are doing that actually face-to-face somewhere. Supporting, feeding people that are hungry, serving them with a smile, where the other people just come throw the food on there and say, hey, bless you, brother, and then you leave. Some of you guys do that weekly, and it's one of the greatest ministries on the face of the earth because you are ambassadors for the king you serve. And people can tell. That's what's encouraging. So, see, this is, we're supposed to encourage each other to keep up in all these different regards. Keep up this good work because if it's dependent upon the Lord for his glory and not well, 
I'm on 53 Christian organizations, and I, you know, that we know that's not what he wants. That kind of motivation should not be a part of us. But we're tempted there. Just know that. So we leave chapter 16. We look forward to uh, the battles ahead. But this is not a, hey, grow up to be like David emphasis. The key with David is what? The Lord was with him. And what God does with him points to the coming of the Savior who will be born into this world as a descendant of this next king, which God set up in his sovereign providential care for us. So let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your work. We thank you for sending your son at the exact right moment in history to accomplish your redemptive purpose. We may have a sacrifice for sin who lived the perfect life demanded of us. That he was your son blows us away. We cannot understand that completely. What a great gift. You proved that you loved us in sending your son. Oh God, keep us from questioning that. Guard us and keep us, build us up so that we won't whine and gripe and see the bad so much that we need to understand, but so much so that it just, it just covers the hope and the light that you give us in the person of Christ who is our only hope, every person's only hope on this earth. We pray for the burden to be able to pray that way and to be able to do and act wherever you've placed us in whatever vocation or job and whatever family situation and whatever geographical place. And we thank you that, that we know that you're working all over this land, raising up children who know you, grown and little children physically. And we pray that we could see and understand your great work amongst us and that we would be encouraged, therefore, to proclaim your word in the grace of Jesus Christ as we, as we genuinely care for people who don't know you. Why shouldn't they act that way? That's what their hearts are really like. Our world now just allows it supports it. It's organized to proclaim it. And God, we pray that we could, by our life and our words, proclaim the truth and that you would bring many to yourself through your son. Thank you so much, so much for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? It's time to do the the premier Old Testament blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Here in Smith's.